Well, this is just one of the many outlets where raw sewage is, is pumped out. I find it upsetting when we're out and we see condoms, toilet paper and excrement floating in the sea. It's causing huge damage to the environment, to the local economy and, of course, to the public health of swimmers. This spring, swimmers in Kent were told to avoid 10 beaches in the county due to sewage leaks. Public outrage at sewage pouring into our rivers and beaches has so far focused on water companies. But is someone else to blame? The pipes that carry sewage in Kent are not owned by Southern Water or even Kent County Council. They belong to a massive Australian asset management firm that most of us have never heard of. That's Macquarie Group. Legal in general. Goldman Sachs. Mortgage. Royal London. The Vanguard Group. BlackRock. Asset management firms are not household names, but they've come to own our energy systems, hospitals, schools, and even the pipes that supply our drinking water. But who are these shadowy companies? What even is asset management? And why are they buying up the things we need to keep our society going? Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, who really owns Britain? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So I'm really chuffed to be joined down the line by Brett Christophers, political economist and author of Our Lives in Their Portfolios, Why Asset Managers Own the World. Hi, Brett. Hi, thank you for having me. No worries. Thanks so much for being with us. So let's dive in then. In the intro, we heard about sewage spilling onto Kentish beaches, and your book begins with an extensive list of how much of Kent is actually owned by these mysterious asset management companies, including the gas pipes, which are used to heat Kent's homes, parking spaces, student housing, schools, hospitals. This is probably going to come as a surprise to quite a few of our listeners. So could we start with you just kind of explaining what this practice of asset management actually is? Yes. Um, asset management is, a, in principle, a very, very simple, straightforward business that I think if people reflected for a couple of seconds, they would realize they are actually quite familiar with it. So all asset management is, in its essence, is where if you as an individual or if an institution with lots of money at its disposal, like say a pension scheme, wants to invest that money, instead of doing the investment yourself, you can hand over that money to a specialist third party called an asset manager. And the asset manager will carry out that investment on your behalf or on behalf of the pension scheme. And that's all asset management is really, is investment in various different types of assets on behalf of third parties, whether that's individuals, households, or institutional uh, investors. The point that I get at in the book and that your introduction linked us to is the fact that a lot of the time when asset managers are investing other people's or other institutions' money. They're investing it not only in financial assets like stocks and bonds and, and so on. They're investing it in quote-unquote real assets, which include things like housing, gas networks, hospitals, schools, and so forth. So that's kind of where the book is pitched, is in that particular area. Okay. So in 2018, the CEO of an asset management firm said to the Financial Times, what we do is behind the scenes. Nobody knows we're here. And as I said in the intro, and uh, as you were just saying, it certainly seems to be that kind of more shadowy secret structures of ownership that we're dealing with 
here. Why aren't we more aware of it? Why don't more people know about this? Probably the main reason is that the asset managers themselves exist typically at one or two removes from the users of these different types of assets. So for example, if if you take the case of, say, rental housing, the tenants, when they pay their monthly rent, it's almost never the case that they actually make out the check or in the modern world, make the online payment to the asset management firm. They typically make the payment to a property management company to whom the owner, which is ultimately the asset management firm in this case, has contracted out the property management function. And even if the asset management firm decided that it wanted to keep that function in-house, in other words, not contract out the management of the property, you still wouldn't see their name on your bill because they would have an intermediary holding company that they would set up that would carry out that function. So most people don't know they're there because they exist at this kind of second or third remove Uh, from what's going on. And that keeps them pretty invisible. Yeah. And I'm imagining the purpose of that is to kind of give them something of, you know, kind of indemnity when it comes to being accountable for systems and things not functioning correctly. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think there are lots of reasons for it, but for sure, one of the reasons why that distance is legally and organizationally created and kind of inserted between the asset manager and the ultimate asset and its user is precisely to enable various forms of, I guess, risk insulation, insulating the asset manager from any type of risk associated with the control and use of that asset. So we're going to get onto how the rise of asset management is affecting all of our lives, but I just want to make sure I understand exactly how it works first. So since we started there, let's stick with everyone's favorite topic, sewage. Um, When you say that these asset management companies own a sewer system, for example, what does that actually mean? Are they involved in maintaining the sewers? How does it work? The short answer is, and the answer I'll stick with, is it varies, but typically, no, they're not you know, people don't go to university and do a master's in finance or whatever, and then go and join Blackstone or Macquarie or something in order to kind of get their hands dirty, cleaning out a sewer. The kind of dirty work of maintaining and upgrading the assets is carried out by someone else. But so the basic model is whatever the asset is, whether it's a financial asset or whether it's a real asset like a sewer or an apartment block or whatever else it is, is the asset manager wants to own that asset in order that whoever it is that uses that asset pays them effectively a rent of some kind. It might be an actual rent in the case of housing or an effective rent, a payment for access to and use of a particular asset. That, that's what the asset manager wants in all these cases is kind of this access or usage payment in the case of a real asset. But the thing that's really important to recognize here, and this is, I guess this is kind of stepping it back, is that that's not really how the asset manager themselves makes money. So the way the asset manager themselves makes money is they get paid fees by those who they invest on behalf of. So if we kind of take this back to to the very kind of basics, say you are the trustee of a big pension fund that has a billion or a couple of billion pounds in your pension scheme, and you decide to give, say, 100 million pounds 
to Blackstone or Brookfield or whoever whoever it might be, for them to invest in infrastructure, which might be sewage infrastructure or energy infrastructure or whatever else it is, you will give that money to the, the asset manager. And at the end, typically after a particular period of time, say 10 years, they will then return that money to you along with any profit they have made by investing that money in your on your behalf. Okay. And you will pay fees to the asset manager for carrying out that service. And those fees are of two main types. One is a kind of recurring management fee, which means you're just paying them a fixed amount each year for doing that for you. And then there are various types of performance fees, which basically means the more money they make for you, the higher fee you pay them, which is kind of a profit share. And those fees, that's how asset managers make money principally, because the money that is being invested in the underlying assets, whether it's real assets or financial assets, is for the most part not their money. So say they spend two billion, three billion pounds buying a sewage network in the UK, almost all of that money that they invest will not be their money. It will it will either be the money of those they are investing on behalf of, the pension schemes, uh, insurance companies, and so on and so forth, or it will be money they've borrowed from banks to add to that money that they've taken from their investor clients. And so hardly any of it is their own money. And so they make a little bit of profit on their own money by investing it. But for the most part, it's a fee-based model. And that's very, very important to understand. Wow. I mean, that was a brilliant explanation of something which feels quite convoluted, and I'm sure it's deliberately so. So just just to make sure I really get it. So are there any actual owners of these kind of infrastructure systems? It's a great question. Yeah. I mean, and, and one of the reasons it's a great question is, you know, if you read if you read the newspapers, you'll often read, you know, Blackstone has bought whatever it might be, the biggest uh, chain of student accommodation in the UK, as it did a few years ago. Or Blackstone has bought the network rail arches you might have read about a few years ago. When you read that, those reports are actually wrong because it isn't really Blackstone that's bought it. Blackstone has bought it using an investment fund that it manages. But the money in that fund that is used to make that purchase, almost none of it is Blackstone's own money. Roughly, on average, about 97, 98% of that money is money put into that fund by Blackstone's clients. So it's a useful shorthand. And people that understand the business kind of know what is involved when people say Blackstone has bought this. But it isn't Blackstone. A Blackstone managed fund has bought it. And what that means is that the asset is ultimately owned in a kind of beneficiary sense. Who are the, you often hear in, in the world of finance, who are the kind of beneficiary owners? The ultimate beneficiary owners are those whose money is in that fund being managed by Blackstone in proportion to their commitments to that fund. In reality, the, the ultimate owners are the pension funds, the insurance companies, the high net worth individuals that have put money into the fund. But Blackstone has has carried out and is managing that investment on their behalf and gets paid fees for doing so. And of course, the pension funds and and the investment funds, et cetera, kind of behind Blackstone, it's not really their money either, is it? No, that's exactly right. One of the things I talk about is, you know, when these funds perform well, when they make a lot of money and when they perform badly, what are the implications of that for all these different 
parties at different parts of the investment chain. So there's the asset manager, there's the pension scheme and its manager or trustee, and then there are the retire, you know, the likes of you and I, whose savings are part of that pension scheme. And, and what you find out is that the reality is that however the fund performs, the asset manager always does very, very well, whether it does well or badly. And yes, when it does well, the retirement savers do well, although not as well as you might imagine. But when it tanks, when a fund you know makes a terrible investment, all the losses are incurred by those retirement savers. Gosh, it's just, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit lost for words, to be honest. I feel like I've just kind of got off a roller coaster, you know, where you're a bit shocked and your hair's all stuck to the side and you're just like, what just happened? Um, okay, some more practical questions. So how much control do these companies actually have over, for example, when continuing the discussion about sewers, when they get repaired or, or upgraded. Um, I know that you've kind of talked about asset managers being incentivized to underinvest in infrastructure, which I found confusing because wouldn't they want to increase its value by improving it? So th- there's lots to address there. But let's put it this way. The fundamental interest they have in most cases, there are certainly exceptions in most cases, is, is when they buy an asset, they buy it almost always with specifically with a view to then selling it and typically not that far into the future. So they might only own it for two, three, four or five years, something like that. Now, there are cases where they hold assets for a longer period of time. And rhetorically, the industry talks a lot about that. They kind of make a lot of play of these investment vehicles they manage that enables them to be the terminology is things like evergreen or perpetual or patient investors. But that's that's the exception to the rule, the evidence shows. And that's true both with respect to infrastructure and real estate. So typically, they buy them in order to sell them. And so as soon as they buy them, they're, the thing that they are preoccupied with is maximizing the value of that asset to other potential buyers of that asset, which often means other asset managers. So what you often find is that one asset manager will own one of these assets, a sewage network, whatever it might be, for two or three years and then sell it to another one and and kind of so it carries on. And if they think that carrying out maintenance or improvements to the asset, if they think that they can monetize all of that cost in the price at which they can then sell the asset, then yes, they will do that. But the reality is that, you know, all capital investment in these types of assets is expected to generate benefits over a very, typically over a very long duration. And the likelihood that you can monetize all of that in the short term is actually pretty, pretty small. And so what tends to happen is that they focus on, well, first of all, maximizing the amount of revenue that those assets are generating and minimizing the costs that they incur in holding that asset and in operating that asset precisely in order to maximize the profit that is being generated by those assets because that maximizes the value to the market of that asset and therefore the the, the likely sale price. And so what you tend to find is that instead of kind of long-term, really meaningful upgrades, you get this kind of sticking plaster or band-aid solutions where it appears like, you know, holes have been patched up, both literally and, and metaphorically. But in reality, 
that they've done things at, at minimum cost that are designed to kind of give the impression that these are durable solutions, but often are anything but. And I think if you look at the water sector in the UK, it would be a classic example of this. So when the water sector was originally privatised, I can't remember the date, back in the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, whenever it was in the UK, initially at least, it wasn't asset management firms that controlled those infrastructures, but they've increasingly come to be among the main controllers of those infrastructures over time through subsequent transactions. And as everyone who pays attention to the news in the UK will know, the UK water and and wastewater network owners have been kind of a locus of ongoing and kind of consistent concerns and complaints from regulators, from non-government bodies and so on around essentially completely unsatisfactory approaches to leakages, both in terms of water and wastewater. And so I think that would be a classic example of that phenomenon. Okay, yeah, because that kind of leads me on to the next question, which is what this means for our actual lives. So I think that's a really good example, but let's go a bit deeper. So if, let's say, you live in a home that is owned by a massive company like BlackRock, although we've just complexified what owned means, um, but for the sake of argument, it's owned by, by BlackRock, How does that kind of tangibly affect your life? Why does it matter who owns your house? I mean, it matters who, to use a a word that everyone's going to be familiar with, it it clearly matters who your landlord is, you know, precisely because your landlord, A, is is the one that sets your rent, and B, also is the one that imposes any extra costs that might go with living in that property, things like, you know, fees for having pets, fees for paying rents late. You know, a whole gamut of different additional fees that can be and increasingly are levied. And your landlord is the one who is who is responsible for responding to your calls about, um, you know, the need for leaks to be fixed or whatever else it might be. So the landlord has a has a very significant say over the conditions and cost of your everyday life as a tenant. Now, the very last thing I want to do and the last thing I do in the book is say, asset managers bad, all other landlords good. That's clearly not true. There are quite good reasons for thinking, well, why would living in an apartment owned by an asset manager be any worse than living in a landlord owned by you know, a bog standard property company or even a housing association, for example? And so what I do in the book is I try and address the question, well, what is there anything that's particularly problematic about asset managers as kind of custodians of these types of assets versus other types of private or, or for example, public owner of these types of assets. And I, and I think that there are, and, and one of them actually we've kind of touched on already, one, one is this sort of inherent short-termism. It's worth actually being clear about why that is the case. And again, I've sort of alluded to this, but without spelling it out. The main reason for that short-termism is the fact that All of the investment that is carried out by asset managers is carried out through these uh, investment funds that they establish into which they pool the money provided to them by their investor clients. Now, most of those investment funds have a fixed life. 10 to 12 years would be a, a typical example. And what that means is that at the end of that, say, 10 years, the asset manager has to return all the money they've been charged with managing to their clients together with any uh, profits that the fund has made. And that's why 
the asset manager begins to think about how and where and when it can sell the asset almost as soon as it's buying it. So if it sets up a 10-year fund, it'll typically spend, you know, the first four or five years investing the money and the rest of the time selling the assets so that there's nothing left at the end of the 10 years so all the money can be returned to the clients. And because they know they have to do that, that that is what creates this kind of inherent short-termism. And something like 90% of investment into the real estate and infrastructure funds managed by asset managers is into these fixed term funds. So they have this short termism. And because they have that this short termism, I argue, and I, and I'm and the more I look at this question, the more I'm convinced this case this is the case, you know, that's not conducive to being a kind of an ideal custodian of an asset. If 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 you're owning an apartment block, and your concern is, well, how can I maximize the value of that apartment block to other potential buyers in the next year or two? Well, then you're not really that concerned about making sure that asset is going to be maintained in a way that is useful in 10, 15, still less 20, 25 years time. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that's very, very specific about the asset management industry, which almost compels those running the funds to treat the asset as kind of cash extraction machines is the kind of fee structures and the remuneration model that works within the industry. So one of these investment funds will be managed by, say, three or four investment professionals that work at a firm like Blackstone or BlackRock or whoever it is. And they are their remuneration is largely in proportion to the profitability of that fund. And so they need the fund to perform very well to make lots of profit, which is dependent of obviously on massively increasing rents and decreasing running costs in order for them to make their annual bonuses, for example. And and so I remember reading an article in the FT a couple of years ago that, that showed that the average salary now at Blackstone is something in the order of $2 million. So it kind of blows the average salaries of big investment banks like Goldman Sachs out of the water. Now, you can only make that kind of money on average if the funds are making huge profits. And that can only happen if they're maximizing rents and minimizing operating costs. So that's one thing. The other thing is that to look at the fees. And so these types of funds that they manage that invest in real estate and infrastructure, they charge very high fees to those whose money they're investing. Many of the listeners will have heard of things like index funds which are funds where, which simply track a particular market index like the, the FTSE 100 or the S&P 100. In those cases, the asset manager doesn't do much work. They're just trying to track uh, the performance of the index. They're, they're so-called passive funds. And the fees on those funds might be 0.15% a year. So very, very low fees and no performance fees. But if you're investing in a big infrastructural real estate fund, managed by an asset manager, you're paying an annual management fee of up to kind of 2% versus 0.15% and a performance fee of 20% of profits. So you're paying very, very high fees. Now, how can the asset managers justify charging those very high fees? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the only way they can justify those fees and continue to attract money to those funds is by making them very, very profitable. And to the extent that they make them profitable, that underwrites their ability to continue to attract money to those funds. And so they can't sort of 
buy an apartment block and keep rents flat and expect to generate huge profits. There's just no way you can do that. The only way you can do it is by hiking rents as much as you can without, you know, incurring the wrath of politicians or pushing up vacancy rates because people can't afford to live there and they can find somewhere more affordable locally. You can only do it by engaging in, in the types of economic behaviours that are deleterious to those that are living in those assets. So as you say, you know, there is a real direct conflict of interest there um, between people, you know, say living in the houses or paying for the, the, the water and public services, etc. And these asset managers whose motivation and reason for existence is to squeeze every bit of profit out of those systems that they can. And, that, and they don't do that by giving people reasonable rents and good services. You mentioned politicians at the end there. That was going to be a big question. Where is the government in this and, and politicians? Is there is there regulation? Yeah. Well, what's going on? Why is no one stopping this? Well, yes. There, yeah, absolutely. There's regulation of different degrees of intensity and of different types, varying obviously from country to country and from asset type to asset type. So, you know, in the case of housing, some countries have rent controls, for example, you know, which clearly is a form of regulation that to one extent or another might inhibit the ability of asset managers and other owners to hike rents, for example. And if we, if, if we go back to the UK case and think about infrastructure, water and wastewater infrastructure, electricity infrastructure, gas infrastructure, and so on, in all of which asset managers have been and are very, very active as owners – the argument has always been and still is that because in many of these areas, you can't have meaningful competition, you don't have two electricity grids, you don't have two sets of water pipes supplying water into the home in any particular area and so on, that because you can't have competition to keep rates fair and affordable, that's where regulation come in, comes in. So, so regulation sort of performs a kind of quasi-competitive role. It acts where competition can't. So yes, there, yes, there is regulation of, of different forms, but I think all, all the evidence suggests that in general, it's inadequate. And at the end of the day, I think it's it, the, the ability of regulators to, to really kind of inhibit the ability of asset managers to engage in these types of, types of extractive practices is quite limited. And I think there are, there are some interesting reasons for that that are worth pondering and thinking about. I think one of the big reasons is that governments around the world, not least in the UK, have essentially persuaded themselves that they can't afford either economically or politically to be owners of or builders of these types of assets, whether that's housing, so public slash social housing, or whether it's infrastructure. And so they've kind of persuaded themselves that these assets are and should and always will be owned by the private sector. Now, the private sector has very expertly exploited that with asset managers to the fore by kind of turning around to governments. They say, well, you know, you need to be careful with your regulation because if you get too keen on regulating on us and if, if you kind of ramp up the regulatory burden, the regulatory pressures, what you're going to find is that we don't invest anymore. You're going to have this kind of chilling impact on investment in the infrastructure and in the housing. And you know, you've you already got really big housing shortages. Already your, your infrastructure is kind of underinvested in. So you need to be very, very careful about that. And governments have kind of bought that argument, I think, hook, line and sinker. And so 
uh, whenever you hear even the, the slightest rumor about off what or off gem or whoever else it, it is in the water and energy sector, respectively, getting more serious about kind of meaningful regulation, the immediate thing you hear is this kind of uh, howl of protest from the private sector, including asset managers, to say, well, you better not do that because it's going to have these really negative outcomes. So let's do a little bit of a kind of retrospective because a lot of what we've been talking about, it links to a lot of uh, previous episodes we've done on the podcast, but I want to get really explicit about how asset management has become such a big phenomenon in our economy. How did we actually get here? For me, there are two parts of that. There's, there's One is kind of asset management in general, like how that's become the kind of big beast it is and why. And then there's the separate question, which is, insofar as asset managers used to invest essentially exclusively in financial assets, they used to just invest in stocks and bonds and hold, hold money in cash, why are they now actually putting lots of money into these real assets? The first one is, I think, quite a simple story. And it helps answer the question of, you know, how is it that globally we've gone from a situation where 50, 60 years ago, so in the 1960s, 1970s, the amount of money globally that asset managers managed on behalf of their clients was less than a trillion dollars. To today, it's over a hundred trillion dollars. So it's gone from essentially nothing to an enormous, you know, amount of money today. And actually, a very, very significant proportion of all global financial wealth is now held and managed by by asset managers. So why has that happened? Well, there's two parts to that story. One is simply huge growth in the volume of capital available to be invested, however and by whom it's invested. And a, a big part of that story is pensions. So particularly in the 1970s, 1980s and onwards, you saw huge growth in privately held pension capital, but also also public pension capital, particularly in the US, but not only there, that was available for investment. So, so part of the thing is that is this sort of surge in, I guess, what you might call surplus capital that is not needed for the day-to-day operation of the economy as kind of working capital, but it's available for investment to generate financial returns for the investor. So that's one part of the story. The other part is, is why is more and more of that money held by asset managers? Because of course, your pension scheme trustee or your insurance company treasurer could just as easily carry out that investment themselves. And actually, many of them do. And so a great example of this, for example, is Canadian pension schemes are classic examples of pension schemes that are much less reliant on asset managers than in other countries. So when they invest in things like housing and infrastructure, they tend to do it mainly themselves. They don't turn around to Blackstone and BlackRock and so on and say, could you do it for us? They do it themselves more than in other other countries. But in general, what you've had alongside this huge growth in capital available for investment, at the same time, you've had huge growth in the proportion of that capital that is outsourced to asset managers for them to do that investment on their client's behalf. And you put those two parts of the story together and you end up with the amount of capital managed by asset managers going from 1 trillion 
to 100 trillion. And in a way, the second story is kind of the corollary of what we've seen in the economy more generally, right, which is outsourcing, which is contracting out. The wisdom of consultants for the last 30 or 40 years is you do in-house very little and you outsource as much as you can to quote-unquote experts, whether you are a public sector or a private sector entity. And asset managers are kind of a creature of that world of outsourcing. The second part of the story is, is the diversification story, which is to say that until probably the end of the 1970s, early 1980s, more than 99% of the money managed by asset managers was invested in financial assets. It was invested in, in stocks. It was invested in government bonds, corporate bonds, uh, and so on. It was invested almost exclusively in financial assets. But from the early 1980s, asset managers and those who they were investing on behalf of began to want to diversify to put some of that money in different types of assets. And they, they began with various forms of commercial real estate, things like shopping centers, office blocks, hotel chains, things like that. Blackstone was a trailblazer in that sense. One of its big early investments was the Hilton hotel chain. And then from the 1990s, they diversified again into the types of assets that I study in the book, as I said, which is housing and various forms of other forms of essential infrastructure. Why did they diversify? There were and are a number of different reasons for that. One of them is this is a kind of simple kind of risk diversification angle. So one of the arguments there is, has always been that investors want what are called non-correlated risks. And so the idea there is that so if financial markets, if stock and bond markets are booming, then if all your money is in financial assets, then great, you're doing, you're doing fine. But if you go through a bear market period where markets are falling, like the last 12 to 15 months have for the most part been, as an investor, you kind of like to have some assets in your portfolio that don't necessarily track that broader market performance. Indeed, you'd kind of like to have some assets that can potentially grow in value while most of your assets potentially are falling in value. And so real estate and infrastructure have often been seen as these kind of non-correlated asset classes. So you can still make money as an investor, even if the financial markets are not performing uh, particularly well at that particular point in time. If you look at the amount of money that asset managers and other investors have put into housing and infrastructure, what you saw was pretty significant growth between the early 1990s and the uh, onset of the global financial crisis around 2008. So the growth was strong, but growth kind of then went into overdrive in the period since the financial crisis. So the pace of growth accelerated rather than decelerating after the financial crisis. And there was a very, very good reason for that. In fact, there were, there were several reasons, for it, but the main one is the following. So if you are a major investor like a pension fund, you invest for two reasons. You invest because you want the value of the assets you buy to go up over time. And so that if you subsequently sell that asset, you can make a profit, a capital gain. But you also invest because you hope that that asset will generate a regular ongoing annual income or yield um, for you as an investor. And in the case of shares, for example, as everyone will know who's listening, if you buy shares and then later sell them, you make you potentially make a capital gain. 
But also, while you're a shareholder, you're entitled to the dividends that are paid by the companies that you own shares of. And that's an annual recurring yield. And the same with bonds. You buy them at a price, you sell them at another price, potential capital gain. But you also are entitled to receive the annual interest that is payable on that bond. Might be a 3% annual coupon, a 4% annual coupon, whatever it is. Now, prior to the financial crisis, investors were generally pretty happy with the yields that were generated by financial assets. Uh, Dividend yields had been pretty good on shares, although not as good as they had been historically. And bonds have been pretty good. So real interest rates were pretty good. And so bonds paid investors pretty healthy, dependable annual yields. But after the financial crisis, that whole kind of macro financial picture changed substantially. Dividend yields crashed and actually were not that high in the first place. But the big thing that changed was bond yields. So as again, as all your listeners will know from previous episodes, we entered very, very different macroeconomic territory after the financial crisis, where central banks around the world, for all manner of different reasons, pushed down nominal and real interest rates to historically unprecedentedly low levels and often negative interest rates, certainly in real terms and often even in nominal terms. And that dragged down interest rates on yields. And so it meant that If you were an investor that historically had relied on bonds to generate this kind of annual income for you, because bonds had paid four, five, even 6% per annum as a yield, suddenly you were faced with a situation where your kind of go-to places for an annual income suddenly weren't providing it. They were paying, you know, 0.5 or 1% annual income. So what did investors do? Well, they said, well, where can we generate dependable annual yields? And the obvious answer was in real estate and infrastructure, because real estate, you have your tenants paying rents on a predictable, knowable basis. So they're generating yields for you. And in infrastructure, you have your ratepayers paying rates, which includes a payment to the infrastructure owner. Same for electricity, same for toll roads, whatever else it might have been. And so infrastructure and real estate and housing became this kind of new source of income for investors who had seen their kind of traditional go-to source of income disappear. And so if you read any report that was published, say, between 2010 and 2015, that asked investors and asset managers, you know, why are you putting more and more money into housing and into infrastructure, the number one answer on that list was always the macroeconomic environment. It was the new macroeconomic environment that led them to really rapidly expand their investments in these asset classes. Okay. So all of that makes a lot of sense in terms of how we got to where we are. And I want to spend a little bit of time before we wrap up thinking about what all of that means for the future. You know, if we want to prevent climate breakdown, we're going to need to kick our addiction to dangerous fossil fuels, as we know. And to do that, we need more infrastructure like public transport, wind farms, etc. So are asset management companies getting in on a piece of the action in that sense? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, they are. All the data I've looked at shows that across all of the different types of infrastructure in which asset managers invest across social infrastructure, schools and hospitals, telecoms, water and so on, 
Energy is the biggest by investment value and has been for several years. And clean energy infrastructure is bigger than dirty energy infrastructure. And so it, that is the main place where asset managers are investing in terms of um, infrastructure investment. And so you can look at the really big players in that field. And probably the biggest is a Canadian firm called Brookfield Asset Management. And it is one of the world's largest owners of any types, not just among asset managers, but of any types of um, renewable energy infrastructure. So yes, absolutely, they're getting in on the game. They are in many ways leading the game. Uh, you know, a lot of the lobbying that goes on now behind the scenes in the US, but not only in the US, that is designed to make clean energy infrastructure an attractive investment opportunity for private sector investors, like uh, probably the best known example is the Inflation Reduction Act in the US last year that renews the US's tax credits for renewable energy investment. A lot of the lobbying behind the scenes to make sure that legislation gets passed is being carried out by asset managers. Uh, the likes of BlackRock in particular have been very, very influential there. So for sure, they are absolutely at the coalface of maybe that's a bad metaphor, given we're talking about energy investment, uh, of what's going on here. But, you know, you set out one example in the book of how an asset management company actually stopped the city of Chicago from building new bikes and bus routes. So how does that fit in with what you've been saying there about them yeah, being at the coalface, as it were? It's a great example. Um, the study that I relied upon in the book to tell that story about Chicago is a wonderful study. And I'd recommend all listeners to check that out and read the original source. Her finding, the person who wrote that study, she, what she found, I mean, it was a kind of a classic example of all this, was that what had happened was that the asset management firm had bought or at least invested in a 99-year concession, which kind of amounts to buying the parking system of Chicago, so all its parking meters and parking garages throughout the city. But when it did that, it kind of came to a deal with the city and they said, look, you know, while we have this concession over the next 99 years, if you, the city and your kind of transportation planners do anything during that period that limits our ability to maximize the parking fees that we are able to extract from this infrastructure, then you have to reimburse us for that. And because of that, the planners, including the planners for things like bike networks, have been terrified ever since about doing anything that might, for example, limit the ability of drivers to park at roadside parking meters and thereby limit the ability of the asset manager to maximize its parking income. And one of the things that could potentially do that is introducing bike lanes. And so they, have, they haven't done it. And, and I think the broader story is there that these kind of investments not only do they tend to be very, very favorable to the asset manager in terms of its ability to extract income from the urban fabric, but they also tend to limit the freedom of movement of governments and their planners to kind of reshape the city in beneficial ways going forward because they've entered these binding deals with the asset manager, whether by long-term concession or by sale. Uh, how did I know it wasn't going to be that simple as uh, the, the, the green silver lining there? Okay. So final question from me, this massive kind of shadowy system of ownership that we've been talking about operating behind the scenes, it feels quite daunting. And especially, you know, with the depth that we've gone into today, it's so, you know, kind of nebulous and tentacular. So how are we, you know, as progressive folks supposed to, 
rewrite the rules of our economy if, if this hidden structure um, is stopping us and, and, you know, as we say, is so embedded? It's very, very embedded around the world, but particularly, I think, in the UK. And it is embedded, you know, politically, ideologically and economically. And so I think it is very, very difficult. And it would require, first of all, it requires a lot more knowledge, which is the precise point of why I've written the book. But also it would require, you know, much greater knowledge on behalf of the class of people and institutions that get to make decisions around these things. But none of that is to say that there aren't things that can be done. I mean, I think that there are some very obvious things that could be done, which is not to say they're likely, but for example, you know, why not simply ban ownership of certain types of assets by certain types of economic actor? There's no inherent reason why closed-end investment funds managed by an asset manager of the type that I've been describing here should be able to buy apartment blocks or um, electricity distribution networks or whatever else it might be. There have been various times in the past in various parts of the world where certain types of ownership by certain types of actors of certain types of assets have been legislated or regulated. But obviously, we're in a situation, in the, certainly in the UK today, where you're kind of allowed to own anything, <laughs> essentially, especially if you're an institution of this type. There are other things you could do as well. We go back to the question of regulation, the way in which the UK's infrastructure is regulated and and its ownership and the money flowing to the owners of those infrastructures are generally regulated right now is through price. And so what I mean there is that you have various types of really complicated regulation that stipulates the prices that owners of these networks can charge, for example, distributed, having electricity distributed over their networks or water supplied through their pipes. Different countries use different approaches to that. You know, US is an interesting example there in in the electricity sector, for example, where you have tightly regulated electricity networks in the US, the approach has not been to regulate price, but has been to regulate profitability to kind of cap the returns that can be generated by those types of owner, which is not to say it's done in a perfect way. It's not, but it's a different approach, which potentially, at least in my view, is more progressive because there you are explicitly saying, you know, we're not going to tolerate returns of above a particular level for these types of infrastructures. So there are things you can do. And obviously the most obvious in a way, if the one that kind of gets the backs up of these types of actors more than anything else is changes of ownership is to renationalize, for example, some of these types of infrastructure, which is obviously something that's been raised and talked about quite a lot in the UK in recent years. And there's no reason why that should be off the table politically. Brett, thanks so much for being with us and taking us on this wild journey. I feel like I've learned so much um, about how all these kind of systems operate. That is all we've got time for on this episode of the New Economics Podcast. Sadly, Brett, thanks so much for being with us. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? Can you remind us about how folks can get hold of the book? So the book is available from the publisher's website, Verso Books. It's probably the best place to go. Lovely. Um, And I would recommend while you're there, you grab a copy of Rentier Capitalism. That is it for today's New Economics Podcast, but we'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone, Margaret Welsh and Katrina Gaffney. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.